Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, COVID-19 and hospitals' desperate need for donated blood forced an end to a long-held policy blocking gay men from donating, but not without controversy. The Navy waived the Trump administration's ban on transgender personnel for one lieutenant. Is this the first step in rescinding the ban altogether? And another historic moment in Boston will, for the first time, not be celebrated with a party in the streets. Boston Pride turns 50 virtually. These stories and more on our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, American adults spend an average 11 hours a day on screens and kids about three before the quarantine. But that all changed. Right now, there's lots of positives around screen time. The risk, though, is that if we don't parent to have some discussions and a few rules, I am hearing from teens all the time now that they're going to bed around 1, 2 a.m., and they're not getting up till very late. They're missing class. And that's creating a lot of toxic feelings in the home. Digital binging in the time of a pandemic. But first, joining me remotely, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or BAGLY. Hi, Grace. Hi, thanks. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Sue O'Connell, political commentator for NECN and co publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Welcome, Sue. Hey, Kelly. And Jansen Wu, Executive Director of Boston GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Hello, Jansen. Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. I am glad to have all of you. Let me jump right into the donated blood and gay men guidelines that have been around forever. And I, for one, thought they had gone away. I don't know why I thought that, but I thought they had. And of course, this came up again during this period of COVID-19 when the Red Cross and everybody's reaching out for donated blood. And it turns out that the policy was still in place. Well, Andy Cohen, whom some may know is a celebrity on Bravo, had COVID-19. And so now he has those antibodies that everybody wants that's in the blood plasma. He wanted to donate and found out that he couldn't. So here's Andy Cohen talking about his experience trying to donate blood as a gay man on CNN last month. I was told that due to antiquated and discriminatory guidelines by the FDA to prevent HIV, I am ineligible to donate blood because I'm a gay man. The new rules are relaxed so that if you have abstained from sex over the last three months, you can give blood. There could be sexually promiscuous heterosexuals who've had plenty of sex in the last three months who can go in, no questions asked, and give blood. So here we are. 
as I said, I thought the policy had changed. It has not. Uh, I don't know, Jansen, and maybe this is a question for you right off the bat, if whether this is a temporary relieving of lifting of these guidelines or is it permanent as a result of this? That's a really good question, and I'm not positive with uh, the right answer. But I do just want to recognize that we believe that the ban is wrong and that this move to reduce the ban to three months is important progress. It used to be seven years, and then they revised it to be one year. And now in this public health crisis we're in, they've reduced it to three months. And so in some ways, it shows kind of the stereotypes and non-evidence-based you know, thinking that people have around the dangers of same-sex sexual contact. But it also shows that, especially in crises, there's opportunities for us to move progress forward. So, Sue, what a lot of people may not know is that all donated blood is screened. I think this stemmed from the time of HIV. So, you know, this is Mm -hmm. even as a gay man, you give blood, but you you just they don't willy nilly just give it to somebody. They screen it all. So there's really no reason for this blocking. No, no, there's no scientific reason for keeping almost anyone from donating blood at any time. And, um, you know, the, the other clear indicator that this is just discrimination against gay men is that there are other groups that are uh, as likely or more likely to have HIV infections. And I'm, I'm not saying they should be banned at all, just to be clear, but they're not banned. So it's just clearly gay men and it's clearly, clearly discriminatory. And I, I, I underscore that it's great you know, that they have uh, loosened the the law and loosened the guidelines, rather. And like you, many Americans, though, Kelly, I mean, I don't know anybody who's more informed than you are, and it sends these mixed messages because you can't imagine how people could possibly be barred from giving blood because it makes neither uh, scientific sense nor nor mathematical sense when you're if you were looking to decrease um, a risk pool. So uh, I, I do hope that, um, you know, when we get on the other side of uh, the COVID-19, that we can take a look at just totally lifting this ban completely, because giving blood is something that we all should do. I think if we're healthy and able to do it, we have the science to make sure that we keep ourselves healthy from it. And Grace, to add insult to injury, this is Andy Cohen representing people who've had the virus. It was a terrible experience for him, as it has been for many people. And now he's got these really valuable antibodies for which scientists believe that there is some um, possibility. It seems to be working. If you take his blood plasma and inject it into people who are terribly sick, it has worked to help bring them back to health. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, this is yet another example of discrimination based on identity and not rooted in science. And so it stigmatizes a whole group of people and denies a real benefit to the community at large based on an antiquated understanding of HIV transmission almost 40 years ago. Yeah. And while you're talking, Grace, let's transition to this story about the Navy waiving another ban that was put in place by President Trump. We should say that under President Obama, the rules were changed to allow transgender soldiers to serve openly. They've always served. Let's just be clear. Everybody's always served, but openly is is the question. You know, now the Navy was hamstrung because they weren't supposed to be doing this, and yet they have moved to allow this waiver for this one lieutenant who sort of followed through with the lawsuit under the name Jane Doe. So my question to you is, is this going to open the door? Because, you know, there's one person, it seems to me, that now you really have precedent. 
Well, I certainly hope so. I, and, you know, this is, again, an, a similar example where people want to serve their country and fulfill a very important role in, in our nation's defense and being denied for no other reason than identity. Again, there's no legitimate reason uh, for, for such a, a ban to be in place. And when uh, a waiver is made for one, then it just shows you how arbitrary it is and that really a waiver uh, can and should be uh, made for everyone. That's a good point. The arbitrariness, Sue, you want to speak to that? Yeah, and I, I mean, we've seen this before. During 9-11, a number of translators who were expert in Farsi, and it was a, a language that was very important to our national defense, were let go during the don't ask, don't tell policy and debacle. So on a regular basis, we see discrimination like this, not based on skill, not based on ability to serve, but based on just pure pure, bigoted discrimination. And this is another one of those situations, too, where we're not talking, not that it should make a difference, but for some people listening who might think, well, you know, there must there must cost a lot of money or it must take a lot of uh, attention. We're not talking about a lot of individuals here. We're talking about a few people who have volunteered to serve and they are burdening the U.S. military no more, no less than any other person who has volunteered to serve. So it, it's, uh, it's hopeful that those in power who are on the ground with these uh, military service members understand their value as, as human beings who want to serve our nation. And hopefully this will open the door to just um, either run out the clock so that the ban can be totally lifted or uh, allow them an opportunity to, to win this in court. And to Sue's point, Jansen, the Washington Blade reports that the newspaper was aware of about 20 people who'd requested waivers. So I would imagine they'll be looking at this move as precedent and trying to, you know, make something happen as a result of that. That's right. Jane Doe's application and victory opens the door for many others who have come out since the ban was put into effect in April. And we're really hopeful for that. I'm glad actually represents Jane Doe in this lawsuit. And the granting of this waiver shows again that this ban is not based on any legitimate reasons, only fear and stigma of a marginalized population. But it's also important to know that even before Jane Doe, and even before the ban went to effect, thousands of service members had already come out as trans, either under the Obama administration or in the first few years of the Trump administration. And those people are allowed to continue to serve. They've been grandparented in under the ban that went into effect in April. So now we have hundreds of not thousands of exceptions to the rule, which, you know, then again begs the question, what are the government's justifications for banning an entire class of people. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me remotely are Grace Sterling Stowell of Bagley, Sue O'Connell of Bay Windows in the South End News, and Jansen Wu of Boston Glad. You just heard him. We're talking about the latest LGBTQ news you might have missed. Sue O'Connell, you noted with some sadness and poignancy that Boston Pride goes virtual this year because it has to. What's that going to mean? Well, you know, it's a, it's a huge loss to the city writ large because this event has become uh, more than just an LGBTQ plus uh, event. It's become a major tourism attraction for the city. And the Pride Committee made the right, I think, an early decision to postpone the 50th anniversary, which would be this year of the Boston Pride celebrations and move it to next year where, where they will mark the 50th. You might remember that last year was the anniversary of the Stonewall riots or uprisings 
that launched in many people's minds the gay rights movement. And Boston was not far behind one year later hosting the first protest that we were going to commemorate this year. So what the Pride Committee has done is to be doing some virtual events. I know they're going to have one honoring LGBT vets, as we were just talking about, and also doing a pub crawl this weekend with uh, bartenders and drag queens. So looking for ways to stay connected with the community as we get through this and looking forward to next year. I mean, you know, it's not weird that a gay event would just skip a birthday so they could stay young. So uh, I think we'll all gather <laughs> again next year. <laughs> we'll gather again next year and say we're 50 and it'll be fine. So. Grace, speak to the loss of having to move not only just Boston Pride and the annual event, but the 50th anniversary of the event. Absolutely. Uh, and this year, it's also Bagley's 40th anniversary. So oh, wow. this would have been Bagley's 40th participation in the Pride March. I've, I've marched in everyone. And uh, so it's a real loss for the youth and for the community that we don't get to come together, uh, not only on that day in, in June, but also, as Sue said, all the events that happen throughout the month. And just this week is Youth Pride Week. And we also had to move Massachusetts LGBT Youth Pride to a virtual platform. And so the young people of our community are definitely grieving the loss of this participation, as are all of us, because it's much larger than just celebrating one community. It's many communities coming together in support of our, of our work. Jansen, does a community come out stronger as a result of this particular adjustment? Well, in our community, sadly, is no stranger to epidemics. And it is really what has built the incredible resiliency and the ways that we care for each other. But what I'm curious about with regards to Pride is that one of the, I think, most important purposes of the Pride is visibility. No matter, you know, uh, who you are in Boston, you know, and what your circles and networks look like, if you're downtown, you know, on Pride, you will see <laughs> a lot. And what does that look like <laughs> when you go virtual, right? Mm, um, mm. In a world where we already are becoming so siloed into our own bubbles and networks, you know, I worry about our ability to kind of show the world authentically who we are. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Not to mention that people are, are going to begin to pick and choose where they want to be virtually because it's been so intense and it's, you know, there's a lot going on there. I'd also say from the financial standpoint that the prides across the country, the advertising dollars that come in from the corporations around pride, both for the pride committees and the newspapers, are basically the fourth quarter for our newspapers like Bay Windows. And without pride, wow. we don't make a profit. So when we return, the other question is, will these big corporations who have been paying for four-color ads and sponsoring prides, will that continue to be a priority for them when they are also having their own financial crisis? So the future, there'll definitely be a pride of some sort, but uh, what it looks like when we return after COVID-19 is going to be anybody's guess. Well, that's a good point. But though I would predict that for the 50th, maybe that won't be as much an issue. Now, the 51st, that might be something else. But for the 50th, I would think everybody would want to be present because, as Jansen has pointed out, that lack of visibility does mean something. And, um, you know, that's an opportunity for our corporate entity to be seen as well uh, in that space. Right. So we'll see. Um, Grace, I'm going to kind of circle back to you because we've been reporting here at WGBH about some of the LGBTQ young people whom you represent through Bagley coming home, being home, those in college, but with family members or others who are never comfortable with how they identified their gender identity. And so it's been quite stressful. What do you know about that? What are you hearing from your own young people in Bagley? 
Well, it's a great question because we know that you know, young people are certainly represented the, the diversity of the larger community and what sheltering in place or sheltering at home looks like for a young person is, is just as variable. Uh, not all young people have stable living situations. Those that do can be in an in a environment that is not supportive or even downright hostile. By being home all the time, they don't necessarily have the access to resources and support that they might have in, in school or in their communities through a community organization like Bagley or the Agley Network across the state. And so the likelihood of isolation goes up. The chances of being in an unsafe situation go up. And at the very same time that they're uh, less access to resources and support. Certainly one of the things that Bagley and our statewide Bagley network have done is gone virtual so that we're offering support groups and as much of our programming as possible online. And so that has been a lifesaver for many young people, but we know there are many more young people who aren't able to access even that level of support. And so there's a concern about what, what that means for somebody who's in a really unsafe situation. And I should note, uh, Sue, that though students were all sent home from colleges, the colleges really couldn't shut down because there are students who could not return to an unsafe environment. So they've, you know, left some facilities open to take care of them on campus, uh, just as an example of some of the, the really strange circumstances that students wouldn't be safe in and couldn't return to. Yeah, I mean, and I know of a couple of people who have taken kids in, both young adults in college and teen kids, just to give them a safe space to be uh, within intra-family stuff. I mean, we talk often about parents, but there's also the challenge of living with siblings, especially if you have been bullied by them, and that's a real concern. I mean, the good news is we've got the Internet, right? And hopefully, although not all people have access to Internet services, there are support groups, there are supportive TikToks that are being made, there are celebrities and influencers who are sending messages of positivity to especially LGBTQ plus kids. So I think the good news is there's awareness of this, this danger and the situation, and there are some lifelines that are available. Jensen, I'm going to switch to the other end of the spectrum when we talk about age and uh, COVID-19 and LGBTQ folks, and that's elders. So some of them are facing isolation. What are you hearing? It's a huge concern. We already know that older adults are particularly vulnerable, not just to this pandemic, but to isolation, food insecurity. And we also know that LGBTQ older adults are a particularly vulnerable population because they are less likely to have children or family members who can support them. They are more likely to be economically insecure. They are more likely to be living in housing situations where they're not safe to come out. And so the pandemic has really just exacerbated the challenges that LGBTQ older adults had already been facing. I think about Massachusetts has a a really robust congregate meal program for LGBTQ older adults. It's not only an important way for the older adults in our communities to get food and nutrition, but also to socialize and how all of those congregate meal sites have been shut down and how devastating that must be for people. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Grace Sterling Stoll, Sue O'Connell, and Jansen Wu. We're talking about LGBTQ news during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, among others, have been asking about data, uh, and to some large extent, so has Governor Baker, that data really informs about really what's going on and where the source of the greatest inequities in, in terms of the spread of the virus are. 
So I was interested in this organization, National Black Justice Coalition and Black Policy Lab, or I have put together an initiative to gather data on Black and queer folks during the pandemic. We've seen some of the results of initial studies about infection being highest among minority communities. And they're narrowing it down to a smaller group to say there's something going on within the communities of of Black and queer folks. I wonder if you all had heard about this and what you think about this kind of data gathering. I'll start with you, Sue. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, something that's also outrageous that's not happening here in Massachusetts. The governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, is actually ahead of us on this, where he is collecting sexual orientation and gender identity, demographic data around the COVID-19 testing and the contact tracing. It didn't even occur to me that we weren't even thinking about this here in the state of Massachusetts, where, you know, we're supposed to be leading on these issues. So to your point about being, you know, queer and of color, you know, we have seen so clearly at this point that all of the challenges that groups and constituencies and communities have faced in day-to-day life, you know, it's like the tide going out now. Now we see without any cover the extra challenges that that, uh, some communities are having. And I think it is essential that every state, every health department be collecting as much robust data as humanly possible when it comes to both testing and treating and the COVID-19 numbers. Because again, I'm hopeful we'll get on the other side of this. And when we do, I hope that we can begin to build the sustainable and equitable platforms that we need to make sure that when we have our next pandemic, which we will, uh, we're not left you know, doing what we're doing right now, which is just an embarrassment in this country. Scrambling. Jansen? Yeah, it is. Massachusetts is behind on this. I applaud the administration for making the decision to collect data on race and ethnicity with regards to the impact of COVID, but they left out LGBTQ status. And we also know that LGBTQ people are more likely to have some of the underlying health conditions that make them particularly susceptible to COVID-19, such as chronic lung disease, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. So I really hope that the administration chooses to include LGBTQ people and that really necessary data. Grace, because you're dealing with a young people's population, I know that you you know what those numbers are. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's nothing like a pandemic to reveal the the social and institutional uh, disparities in any community. And and we know that, you know, communities of color, especially black and brown folks and LGBT folks, and especially LGBTQ folks who are people of color, they face all of the structural racism and homobide transphobia that exists day to day. And in the pandemic, then that gets heightened from what kind of jobs people have, who, who gets laid off first, and what that means for families and young people who has jobs where they have to they, they're, they're considered essential workers and they can't shelter in place at home, you know, and on and on and on. And so it, it's not surprising that communities that are being hit particularly hard are communities of color, LGBT folks, and especially LGBT folks of color. Okay. I'm switching gears now. There are two stories. One, Sue, you presented this story about Roy Horn and Little Richard, and what the title says is Life in the Half Closet. And the other one is really about Ellen DeGeneres. You know, all of a sudden, there's a lot of commentary out there about how she's not a very nice person, contrary to her image. But first, let's start off with the Roy Horn and Little Richard in the half closet. Sue, talk about that. 
Sure. Roy Horn, of course, is one half of the uh, the Lion Taming group, and Little Richard, of course, the, the the originator of rock and roll. And they both passed away recently, and they fall into what one of the writers at The Advocate, John Casey, calls the Liberace closet, where, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have remembered watching the Liberace show when I was little and just being fascinated by this sequined human being playing this piano. And when Liberace died and later in life was coming out, it was shocking to some people that he was gay. And to others, it was like, it, it, he's been gay all along. What couldn't you see? And it's sort of the same conversation that folks are having about Little Richard and Roy Horn because they never were necessarily completely openly gay, but they would go back in and out of the closet as needed. And I say that very carefully because they, they were in a different time than we are now. You know, to judge the decisions that they made through today's lens is cruel, I think. But at the same time this week, we lost another person, and her name was Lynn Shelton. She died unexpectedly. She's young. She was openly bisexual. She was a director. She also directed the most recent Little Fires Everywhere. And I was struck by the sort of comparison of there were certainly still people in the world who didn't know Roy Horn and Little Richard were gay. But in Lynn Shelton's unfortunate obituary, the fact that she's bisexual is just right up there, right up front without any any need of further discussion. And um, I think that's sort of the price that Roy Horn and Little Richard had to pay. Hmm. Grace, the importance of, you know, not being invisible in this way, or are you like Sue? Hey, that was that time. They did the best they could. And, and, and now we're someplace else. I'm also old enough to remember, you know, from Liberace to Paul Lind and Charles Nelson Riley and, and the folks who are, who really presented themselves in a way that by today's standards, we'd say, oh, of course, and yet never said it. And it was a line they walked, but I, but I, I, I feel more, admiration that in in really challenging closeted times before legal protections before there was the kind of public awareness and acceptance that there there is in some quarters now that these you know brave folks were able to be out and visible and push boundaries around gender and and around presentation and gender expression and and they didn't really have to name it and so mm. yeah it's a tough one to say were they doing the best they could in a tough time and or were they also representing something that was far more out there than many closeted celebrities who were completely in the closet and no one had a clue so i i, I feel respect and admiration for for what they were able to do and how they they lived their lives jansen you want to add something just that people are complicated and complex including celebrities and it shouldn't, and including LGBTQ people. And I don't know why people seem to be, you know, continually surprised about that fact or surprised that, you know, Ellen DeGeneres is a human being with faults, right? Or that <laughs> some people, I mean, I mean, it's true. What, the point, what I'd rather see is how do we get to a point where there are enough visible role models in any sector, whether it's entertainment or politics or sports, where no one person has to carry that mantle or burden. Um, it really is marginalized communities like LGBTQ communities and communities of colors who put so much responsibility on one or two people's shoulders because we're so starved for that representation. Well, that's the, the lead right into Ellen. You're right. And that's the reason why these stories are have gotten a lot of traction about Ellen being actually the opposite of Miss Nice, which she comes across as, and being mean. Here's a clip from her uh, latest Netflix special, which is ironically called Relatable. <laughs> 
And I said, Batu, I'm not hungry. I've lost my appetite. And he said, well, then I shall draw you a bath, ma'am. So I'm sitting in the tub, and um, anyway, I get out of the tub, and uh, Batu had forgotten to put the towel next to the tub. So I had to do that bath mat scoot all the way across the bathroom to get to the towel. You can imagine how big the bathroom is. It's like doing the bath mat scoot. And then I stopped, and I was like, oh my God, this is relatable. <laughs> Um, I just laugh because I thought she's making fun of herself about being wealthy. But to Jansen's point, um, Sue, there's a lot of weight on her shoulders because I know how much weight I put on some African-American folks. You know, you got to hold up the crown, and I don't want you to be mean in the middle of that. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, though, this whole criticism of Ellen just smacks to me more of sexism than anything else. I could list at least 10 people who are in positions you know, on the same playing field that she is that are as bad, if not worse than she is. I mean, it's been an open secret for years. During the anniversary of her coming out episode on her show years ago, just recently they were talking about just how hard she is to work for. But, uh, you know, again, that doesn't make her a bad person. But we're not talking about those other people right now who happen to be men, who happen to be established, who may or may not be paying out of their own pocket their union staff or non-union staff for the shutdown. So I, I get, absolutely agree that we do put an awful lot of weight on people's shoulders, and she's been very open about how much that weight has impacted her emotionally, financially. But, um, you know, I, I think if I, if I have to hear another couple of months of how awful Ellen is, I'm going to start naming names. Okay. <laughs> You're not on the list, Kelly. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, finally, I just want to mention that Netflix series called She-Ra had cast a non-binary person as a shape-shifting mercenary for one thing. It just ended its run. Very path-breaking in many ways, and I, I'd like to have some uplifting comment at the end. Jansen, do you have some uplifting comment to make about She-Ra, the series? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll just start by saying, as I remember my very first crush was on He-Man. So, I mean, <laughs> if there were somebody of some queer comic book representation for the next nine-year-old out there who's discovering or her or their sexuality, I mean, that is progress, if, if nothing else. I'm so excited for it. I would note that it's called She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. And Grace, you get the last comment. Oh, sure. Well, representation matters, and, and young people, as always, are leading the way. And and uh, I think that there, there's so many ways that it just opens up the, the whole door around gender identity, gender expression, power, and, and, and who gets to be a hero or a heroine or seen in that light. And so I, I think it's great that there are more images than ever before, more representation than ever before. So the more, the more, the better. Okay. Well, you're all superheroes to me, so thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. Sue O'Connell is a political commentator for NECN and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston Glad, GLBTQ, Legal Advocates and Defenders. Coming up, the research is clear. Too much screen time on phones, game consoles, and laptops can impact the brain development in the young and can contribute to sleep disorders and depression in adults. So what now that quarantine living has turned us all into digital bingers? That's next. 
This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Never before did parents think they'd be encouraging more screen time. But now, in the midst of a pandemic and nationwide social distancing, we're telling our kids to get online. That is, when they don't have to share the Wi-Fi with the adults in the house. With school lessons online on Zoom and social media like TikTok all the rage, what's the impact of double the screen use? And what are the privacy implications of virtually sharing so much of our personal lives? Joining me remotely, Dr. Delaney Rustin, primary care physician based in Seattle, documentary filmmaker and creator of the award-winning film Screenagers. Welcome, Delaney. Great to be here. Glad to have you. Also with me, Leah Plunkett, Associate Dean and Associate Professor at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law, Faculty Associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, and author of Sherrithood. Hi, Leah. Delighted to join you. I'm glad to have you both because this is very timely conversation. So people are on Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. I'm going to focus on TikTok for just one second because the explosion of TikTok, which if people are not familiar, is a kind of video app where people post pranks and do lip syncs. It's just exploded. In fact, according to the analytical company Sensor Tower, TikTok has been the most downloaded non-game app worldwide for March 2020 with more than 115.2 million installs, and that was a 98.4% increase from March 2019. So people have been all over it, and particularly with anything that looks like it's related to the coronavirus. People may be sick of it by now, but believe it or not, 5.5 billion total viewers search for these videos that are tagged coronavirus. Here's just a, a few of the TikTok videos that have drawn inspiration from the coronavirus. Okay, just because I live in the town with the most cases of corona in the U.S. and our entire town is going under lockdown like Simpsons movie type beat, doesn't mean you could just like ask me if I'm sick. Like, yes, I'm sick. I have stage four Bieber fever. Yeah, you got that yummy. The class moves online and the boomers all die. That's Corona. My school is closed. Classes are canceled. We are getting kicked off campus all because of the coronavirus. And I just want to say thank you, baby. Thank you, baby girl. <laughs> thank you. All right, so those are just some clips from the TikTok videos. There's plenty more where that came from, as I've said. But the point is, is that what we used to think of as binging would be watching an episode after episode of a series, let's say. But now digital binging has taken on a whole other broader definition, Delaney, because it's all of that plus more because we're on screens all the time. So first, why don't you talk about if you're on binging this way without any real breaks. What's the danger in that? Well, absolutely. There's a lot of dangers in terms of relationships in the house. So there's a lot of tension in the home right now. And 
while this can make sense because teens are, you know, wanting to be in their room alone, it's really an important time that we do steps to make families be more together and aligned. And that's been my work with screenagers. Right now, there's lots of positives around screen time, absolutely. And the risk, though, is that if we don't parent to have some discussions and a few rules, I am hearing from teens all the time now that they're going to bed around 1, 2 a.m., and they're not getting up till very late, they're missing classes, and that's creating a lot of toxic feelings in the home, as well as the kids not feeling good. And in fact, when I ask teens, um, do you need help in getting sleep? They say, well, yes, actually, I do. Hmm. Let's take a listen to a clip from your Screenagers. That's the name of your film. This is regarding adolescent screen time use. It all started with one question. What new phone to get my daughter? I knew what Tessa wanted, a smartphone. I learned that you spend on average six and a half hours a day looking at screens. As a doctor, I decided I needed to understand the impact of all this screen time on kids. And as a mom, I needed to know what to do. The young adolescent brain can oscillate back and forth very, very quickly, but it comes at a cost. I'm so distracted by my phone, so it's hard to listen to a teacher and actually understand what they're saying. So we should say there's not been an intense amount of research about the physiological impact on the body with increased screen time, but there is some. And it mostly goes back to some of the stuff that you just said, Delaney. In your film, you mentioned the distraction that the kids were talking about and the interrupted sleep. It actually has an impact on your brain functioning. And one of the doctors you talked to said the greater danger is that you get used to this sort of increase in good feeling from doing all this screen use, which is heightening your dopamine, which is a a good feeling. So talk about that a little bit, about the fact that you can actually feel good by doing it, but at the same time, you become desensitized, and that takes you down a different rabbit hole. Exactly. We can see this on functional MRIs, things like video games, social media, binge-watching shows. These actually secrete dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. That's the reward and pleasure center of the brain. And having ongoing release of dopamine, what happens is the body tries to get to homeostasis and equilibrium, and it'll actually decrease the receptors to the dopamine so that when that stimuli is not present, things that normally would be okay, whatever, you know, just life in general can feel much more boring and just not the pleasure that one would expect from it. And so what researchers recommend is that while, yes, there's a lot more screen time right now, that it high dopamine activities, the one I just mentioned, to be interspersed with lower dopamine. So for example, let's say a kid has played video game for an hour, try to help the brain reset by having that kid maybe bake something for an hour or go outside and walk and then could come back to that video game. And even if they stay on a screen time, doing things like reading on the screen or other things aren't considered high dopamine, they're low dopamine. And that uh, seems to reset the brain so that the receptors get to the normal level and the kids and teens will be less irritable and whatnot when they're not on the high dopamine activities. 
Uh, that's my guest, Dr. Delaney Rustin. She's the creator of the award-winning film Screenagers. Moving over to my other guest, Leah Plunkett, Associate Dean and Associate Professor at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law. Because, Professor, you have been, since 2008, sort of raising the alarm about privacy issues. And the reason that's part of this discussion about digital binging, because if we're binging all kinds of digital material, that means or it, it, people should be aware of, at least, that our attention to how much of our personal selves are out there on all of these screens has sort of gone out of the window. So what is your concern with regard to digital binging and privacy? I'm concerned that it is just not possible for parents to read and understand the terms of use and privacy policies of the apps and programs and connected devices and all the digital things that we have just had to open the floodgates for into our homes. And it's a little more possible for teachers and school administrators to parse these terms if they have proper support from legal and technical professionals. But just realistically, the need we have right now for digital connection to replace all other forms of digital connection with institutions and individuals outside our immediate family is so great that we just don't have the time to make informed decisions about whether a given product or service will be privacy protecting. And even if we did have time to read all the terms of use and privacy policies, it's take it or leave it. And right now, really, we just kind of have to take it and look to the tech companies and government regulators to try to get the companies to offer us better privacy protection than they were pre-pandemic. Yeah, well, there were already examples pre-pandemic that, you know, we were in an even more dangerous zone. You know, I have to say, Leah Plunkett, that a lot of young people will say to you, those who are old enough to post themselves, and I'm talking about young, young kids, you know, what are you talking about privacy? Everything's online. I don't have anything to hide. I wish you'd respond to that because now I usually don't have an answer for them except to say, I don't want everything about myself out there. But they've grown up in a time where it just feels natural to them. What I say to that is first you may change your feelings about that over time. And I recognize that telling a tween or a teen or even a young adult that their attitudes on any topic, including privacy, are likely to evolve, may be met with an eye roll. But I still think it's important to have the conversation and try to be concrete in an age-appropriate way. So to the 15-year-old who says, you know, I don't care if this video of me is online, you can say, okay, but in two or three years when you're applying for college, how would you feel if the college admissions officer sees this? And really try to make it concrete and age appropriate. And second, I also have a talk with them about how people that they don't know and businesses that they don't know can see this and just also, again, play out how it feels to have private information out there in an unknown and unknowable way. And I have found that if you have those kinds of conversations, either about specific real-world examples or the big open-ended question of how do you feel not knowing who could see this, those can get some traction. Well, it reminds me of when you're talking about pre-COVID-19, something that had just come out with the Ring videos. Now, this is back to 
you know, parents installing and sort of maybe not being aware or as aware as they could be. So if I might remind people, the Ring video system is attached to your doorbell or it can be installed inside your house and you can monitor various rooms or outside of your house and it's supposed to add a layer of security. Well, let's take a listen to this clip. This is recorded on a family's Ring home security system. Somebody hacked into the system and is speaking to the family's daughter via the system in her room. So I come upstairs and I hear some banging noise. I was like, who is that? Who is that? I'm your best friend. I'm Santa Claus. You can do whatever you want right now. You can mess up your room. You can break your TV. That came to mind when I started uh, reading some of your concerns, Leah Plunkett. I thought, okay, that is as innocent to me as it can get. It's supposed to be there for privacy, for security, and yet it just went all the way wrong because somebody was able to hack into these systems, a system that, by the way, is there for security. <laughs> so Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I do think that these devices and products are designed to almost trick us into forgetting that even though we're just seeing them as part of our homes or on our desks or sometimes on or in our bodies, if we're wearing a fitness tracker or taking a smart pill, that these devices we see all around us actually are outlets to the outside in ways like that hacker that clip that you just played in ways that we cannot really control and can't always predict. And that we as parents, especially now that we have so many digital needs, we should be thinking about every time we add a digital product or service, is this really necessary for school, for work, for family connection, for recreation, or is it something that I think would be kind of fun and maybe kind of convenient? But you know what? If you're not really sure how secure or private it is, I would say this is not the time to be introducing it just because there's already so much that is leaking out of our homes from these devices that we think of as actually just being private in our homes. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guests are Dr. Delaney Rustin, primary care physician, documentary filmmaker, and creator of Screenagers. It's a film. And Leah Plunkett, you just heard her, associate professor at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law and author of Sharenthood. We're discussing children's digital use in the age of Zoom and COVID-19 and digital binging. So back to you, Delaney Rustin, because... One of the things that we know about the dopamine, as you've just explained, about being desensitized about it, and now you put the combination of teenagers, because that's been your focus, they're not ones to want to have a conversation with you about their internal lives. And what some of these early studies are suggesting is that the so much screen time actually pushes them more inward, which is not good in terms of their being able to socially connect in any other situation. That was happening before COVID-19. Now we have this times three or maybe times 10. How do you look at it? Well, you know, mental health challenges have been prominent for teens since forever. Personally, even before COVID, my daughter started to have depression symptoms. And even as a primary care physician, I didn't know 
how to help her. So all of this led me to create the film Screenagers Next Chapter, which you're right, it looks particularly at tweens and teens and all sorts of stories related to challenging emotions, stress, anxiety, depression, what skills they can be learning and what we can do as parents. Because what I saw that was happening in our society is that we were trying, as you mentioned, Callie, to engage our our teens and we were failing. And that's because we've had such a scare tactic. When I started to make the first Screenagers film, I just couldn't believe how many police were going into schools and shaming and blaming kids about cyberbullying. And teens and kids became incredibly defensive. So my work over the past nine years with these films, which are for both kids and parents and teachers and everyone to watch together, is to not have a scare tactic, but to have a share tactic, which is, you know, sharing the science and the stories to engage our youth to become more mindful and work with us as, yes, as we create limits and um, we navigate so many challenging conversations that have to happen. Well, in fact, uh, Leah Plunkett, the name of your book is Sharent Hood. Why don't you describe what you meant by titling your book that and what you hope to get across? I love the idea of sharing rather than scaring. I was actually using the term sharent in a somewhat in a different context that is a little less positive. So I call my book Sharenthood because the term sharenting, which is increasingly gaining traction in public discourse, is used to describe the ways that parents talk about kids on social media. That is kind of the conventional definition of sharenting. I brought in the definition in my book, and I use the term sharenting to mean all the ways that not just parents, but parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, directors, and other trusted adults share children's private information online without their kids' consent or necessarily their knowledge. Let me just say this to you. I bet you didn't know about this. There is something uh, going on around line called pandemic photos of babies. Are you aware of this, Leah Plunkett? I am not. So you put the baby in a cute position, dressed up, and then you around them disinfectant wipes, rolls of toilet paper, kinds of stuff that indicate COVID-19 coronavirus quarantining. And then you take a photo and send it around. And here's a quote from one of the parents. I want when Riley looks back on this period of her life to remember feeling safe and loved. Making light of the situation while we're safe in our house is one way to do that. I figured we have pictures of all these other big moments in Tyler's life. Why not this, said another mom. So I, when I read that and then I read what you were talking about, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what you would think about that. But that's apparently a big trend online. And there are many, many pictures out there of children. That's, of course, done in sort of in the age of the pandemic. But they're using it as a way to remember the time. And I don't think anybody's thinking that it's harmful in any way. And I think most sharenting, especially those kinds of social media posts, is really done with the best of intentions, or at least not with bad intentions. I think parents, whether it is the baby in a pandemic, which I now will have to look up after we're done talking, um, or the more typical first day of school or little league tryouts, parents are proud. They want to share their pride. They want to create a memory trove for their children. And I agree that with the comments that you just shared from parents who've done 
the baby pandemic photos that this is pretty standard for parents' social media posts to want to commemorate a moment. I do have real pause about any social media posts to commemorate any moments about kids when the posts include pictures of children, identifying information about children, or other intimate information about children. Because when you look at the balance of factors in the risks that are that come with sharing private information, I'm just not so sure that in most circumstances, the benefit of creating the memory or creating the connection outweighs the risks of that information being used somehow against children now or in the future. Well, that's why I want both of you to answer this question, which is, how do you put the genie back in the bottle? Delaney Rustin. I mean, you all have both raised some in very thoughtfully ways that we should be thinking about what this digital binging long-term impact can be. But we've done it now, and there's a certain measure of concretizing because you want to talk about habit forming. It's it's supposed to take three weeks, right? And so we've we've been in quarantine for quite some time. So how did, what happens now? This tech revolution really warrants a parenting revolution. You know, I think the success of both Screenagers and Screenagers Next Chapter is because you see me in real life struggling with my kids over the course of the film to just be vulnerable and to just say, we are up against a force that is so intense from, you know, exciting video games, from them wanting to be with their friends, from all sorts of stuff. So what I often give is a 3V approach, and one is to validate. I had to let my teens know that I really understood how important screen time was to them because I had been doing this uh, stab and grab approach where I would stab them with my eyes and grab any electronic they were on. And so when it came to defining limits, they just didn't believe me that I understood how important some screen time was to them. The next V is values. What do we as individuals and families value? And through that, making a few key rules. So for me as a physician, my teens know that sleep is supreme and they've grown up with screens out of their bedroom at night for sleep and that has made a habit for me my son's in college and when he comes home he uses the alarm clock and he keeps his screens out and you know right now with uh, covid people might not be even doing many rules at all but they can value conversations so for example maybe there's a lot of violent video games and as parents they're not really happy the idea of playing games and killing people so they say well let's spend some time at dinner now and then talking about nonviolent movements that have changed the world and the third v i would say is village so for over 4 years i've been writing a weekly blog it's been developed into kind of a movement tech talk tuesdays where hundreds of thousands of parents have joined and it's all about sparking calm conversations with our kids around these topics. And Callie, I'm so glad you brought that up from the beginning. Like it's all about how do we get them to want to have these conversations with us because it is so important. Right now with COVID, if our kids and teens, as they start to feel more lonely as they are feeling and isolated, how do we use this village of our family and other connections to bring some joy in this really, really hard time? Okay. Same question to you, Leah Plunkett. And I would just add this. Twitter has just announced that all of their workers that want to work at home can do it permanently. So I think we've already seen that if you're home, you're doing more on screen than if you're in the office, even for people whose work is to be on screen. So think about that as you tell me, how do we put the genie back in the bottle or do we? 
We don't put the genie back in the bottle, but we try to develop a relationship with the genie where we're harnessing its powers for good rather than mischief. And when it comes to sharenting, I really encourage families to have a family approach to digital privacy. So this doesn't have to be complicated, but it can be some rules of thumb that actually are are similar in terms of thinking about the limits on screen time that we would want for our cognitive, emotional, and mental health. But here it's about privacy protection. So some simple rules of thumb that I often suggest for families as a place to get started would be never post any pictures of kids in any state of undress, even if it's a seemingly innocent picture of somebody in a swimsuit at the beach. Never post completely identifying information like a full name or an address online. And then another rule of thumb that I encourage families to have in their family approach to privacy is if there is a low-tech or no-tech way of doing it, try those first. So you just gave a great example of the many ways that we're witnessing in real time truly a revolution in the lack of boundaries between home and work and the rest of the world. And we are so lucky to have digital technologies to make that possible. But now more than ever, let's think about those things we can do an old-fashioned way. Here's one example. There are smart diapers there that use sensors to tell you when a diaper is wet and needs to be changed on your baby. That is one where I would say you can probably use a no-tech approach to staying on top of your baby's diaper changes. I did give this example once in a book talk and had someone come up to me afterwards and say, I'm a pediatric urologist. Sometimes we do need to track urine output. So that's a great response (laughs) for a reason why a high-tech digital way of having a smart diaper may be necessary for that family at that time. But otherwise, you don't need to be putting a sensor, you know, in your kid's private parts. You can just see if the diaper's dragging or do a tushy pat. So those kinds of no tech unless it's really necessary to carry out an activity, I think is extra important right now. All right. Well, I thank both of you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Delaney Rustin is a primary care physician based in Seattle, documentary filmmaker and creator of the award-winning film Screenagers. Leah Plunkett is an associate dean and associate professor at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law, faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, and author of Sharenthood. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubelee and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 